This is Radical Exchange. Replayed. This is a conversation which was aired on RXC TV as part of the 2021 Radical Exchange Unconference Online. In this conversation, you will hear from Jim Rutt, a podcaster and entrepreneur, and Tyson Yunkaporta, a writer and researcher whose latest book is called Sand Talk How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. They will discuss the ways indigenous thinking provides innovative solutions to help solve the problems of modern society. Please enjoy this episode of Radical Exchange Replayed. Hey, good. <laughs> hey, good. Good to connect again. Yeah, yeah. My hemispheric twin. So, if you don't mind, I will give you a, a little uh, intro. Tyson is one of my favorite people. You know, he and I just had so much fun in our various interactions on my podcast, which is the Jim Rutt Show, jimrutshow.com, putting a little plug in there. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he's just an amazing character. He's an academic and he's a researcher. And it uh, was at the Dawkins uh, University, Deacon, Deacon, Deacon University, Deacon. Deacon University. He's a research fellow in indigenous knowledge. Uh, and uh, I first uh, came across him. Uh, from his book, Sand Talk, I just saw a little little blurb somewhere that said, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. I go, shit, that sounds interesting. And I read it's called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And at the time I read it, I went on Twitter and said, this is the most interesting book I have read in the last two years. And it's been about two years since I read it. And I think it's now the most interesting book I've read in the last four years. So... Uh, folks, if you haven't read uh, Sand Talk yet, go read it. It's just the most amazing combination of uh, you know serious thinking from a complexity perspective, from an indigenous perspective, and it's a beautiful work of art. You know, how often do you get to say that about a, a, a serious book of ideas that it's also uh, a great work of art? So, uh, so that's, uh, that's Tyson. He's, uh, he's sitting there going, oh shit, you know, there's Rutt pumping me up again. God damn it. Uh, but, uh, you know, he deserves it. His stuff is great. Uh, I'm Jim Rutt. I'm a podcaster, uh, at the Jim Rutt show, jimruttshow.com. I'm a retired business dude. I did, uh, help sort of build the internet, internet kind of thing all the way back to the ancient pre-internet worlds of 1980. Uh, I'm also a uh, former chairman of the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, we like, like to think of ourselves as the uh, home of complexity science. And I'm one of the, uh, the startup gang for something called Game B, uh, which is a, a new way of thinking about uh, social operating systems for the world uh, that can lead us to a, a truly sustainable yet interesting and good uh, pathway for humanity towards the future. If you want to learn more about Game B, uh, go to game-b.org. Uh, they'll ask you a few questions. Just say, Jim Rutt sent you, goddammit, uh, and they'll let you in. Uh, it's, it's, still, it's currently a, a somewhat controlled uh, website, but if you, if you hear me, uh, you can go there, uh, game-b.org. So anyway, that's us. Uh, so Tyson, what have you been up to? Ah, too much. I'm I'm preparing for a writing retreat. I'm going to write Sand Talk too. The, yeah. the the working title is um, Twelve Ways to Avoid Lists in the Anthropocene. 
Uh, I love that. It's good. Uh, I, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm just gonna completely. Ah, uh, I've, I've I've started a, a war on um, a war on personal development. I'm, I'm just I'm sick of all this self help. Sick of all these books. It's like ten things you can do to stop climate change. You know, eight things that you can do to make yourself smarter and and all this kind of thing. I'm like, ah. Oh, how about God. the how, how about the ones even better? Pure clickbait. 15 pictures of movie stars of the past that you won't believe, right? Uh, it's no, it's kind of like that. Yeah, crap it's like that. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's, good. that's my working title. So I, I'm going to try and break my record, and, and I'm going to write this one in five days. That's my that's my goal. I'm going to go 24-7 for five days. You, you know, need a big bag a little, of methamphetamine to pull that one off. Shack in the bush. Yeah. See how we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, is it going to be the mix of you know the personal and the ideas like Sand Talk One? Yeah, uh, yeah, and and just all the yarns like um, you've kind of propelled me. You know, you propelled me into a world of people who who are talking about amazing things. So I guess we'll be getting into that today. I mean, and I've just had all these yarns with all these people, so I want to sort of put them all together. All the ideas coming out. So I actually talked to Catherine Collins today. I interviewed ah. her. Um, so, so she's the new chair there at the, at the Santa Fe Institute. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, we, we mostly talked about bees. Bees? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, she yeah. likes bees. Right? That's, she that's does cool. like bees, but she never gets a chance to really talk about them beyond the kind of biomimicry kind of, you know, um, sort of sexy, ooh, like, you know, money's like bees. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We did a lot of a lot of talking about all the weird things people project onto bees, well, from moral panics to you know pretty much everything else. It's it's, it's very exciting, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that on, it's going to be on your uh, podcast? Yeah, I, it's already up. I, would, oh, I just oh. I don't I don't even edit these things. I just throw them up five minutes after um after I finish the the conversation. It just goes well, up raw. Yeah, after. Check it out. She's a very interesting thinker, uh, uh, and and uh, be interesting to see what you two can have stirred up. Uh, you know, yeah, speaking of yarns, let's. Uh, uh, I do want to uh, just go back and uh, and sort of wrap up one of our long running yarns, which is uh, Mister Emu. Oh, uh, well, yeah. you're going to have to summarize the story before you give me the the next installment. Yeah, in uh, um, in in uh, Sand Talk. Uh, Mr. Emu is one of the characters, right? The uh, truth, I don't remember the detail, but one of the uh, one of the spirits of the origins of the world. Why don't you, uh, you know, give a, a little bit of rap about Mr. Emu, and then I'll uh, yeah. tell, uh, tell my side of well, the story, we, and I'll give you the final we, uh, the final denouement, as far as I know it. We're talking a lot. Of, we talked a lot about Emu, you know, because the, in that sort of dreaming story we were looking at there from Western Australia in the book. Um, this emu is, is a narcissist, you know, he's, um, he's, uh, what they call a katwara, crazy. And, and so wait, she's running round and round. And this was at a meeting where all the species were sitting around trying to decide, uh, which, which species would become the carers for everything. So what I refer to as the custodial species, which was best suited to doing it. And it was the human animal that run, won the right to do that in the end. But the emu didn't like that much. He was running all around the place, kicking up dust, saying, look how fast I can run. I should be the boss of all this. And um, it took everybody in the end to hold him down. You know, so um, he's, a, he's a big dark shape in the Milky Way. 
uh, seasonally that comes up and, and sort of in that season when that story is alive and that ceremony is being done, you know, you've got the kangaroo there with the, his head as the Southern Cross and you've got the, the uh, echidna there and uh, you've got the rainbow serpent is coiled around the emu's legs. You've basically got everybody just suppressing this narcissist because, um, you know, controlling the excesses of sociopaths, etc., is a team sport. Um, it does take everybody <laughs> to get that done. Um, yeah, so, and, and of course, you know, with Jim's sort of general sort of disdain and, and sort of perplexed feelings about, you know, this kind of the weird sort of woke uh, stuff that's happening in the world and the weird, uh, you know, everything else from QAnon to, you know, all the weird panics and strange things happening in the world and all the everything going out of control. We, we've talked a lot about narcissism and talked a lot about emus uh, in all our discussions about, you know, humans as a custodial species. And, um, yeah, and this kept coming up. I don't know, we must have yarned about this four or five times, like quite a bit, and, and it kept coming up as a theme for us. You know, that was the thing that you focused on most in the in the in out of all the stories in that book. And yeah, then, then the game uh, B one world, day... Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, then uh, in our Game B world, we often uh, talk about the danger of narcissists and sociopaths, and that one yeah. of the most fucked up things about Game A is that it is an attractor for, I mean, there's just these handles of power sitting out there waiting for narcissists and sociopaths to grab them, right? And yeah. uh, and and this is one of the things that we talk about uh, a whole lot. Yeah, and, and we're trying of, to figure out well, what's the main difference between pattern thinking and patternicity, which there's a big difference. And, you know, and, and we're going into the Aboriginal tradition of um, of, of including that, that seeing signs signs strange signs in the landscape and and so here's the strange around yeah, so, that uh you know that that's part of our triangulation you know in our method of inquiry there's there's signs that you follow and so you know jim's like you know you mentioned spirit and i get my gun but we like uh, <laughs> i've never talked about spirit more with anyone else than with you which is so weird because we always end up going there and you know okay. so we talked a lot about emu spirit and then there and was then, a sign <laughs> And then there was this Appalachian. Yeah, deep. I live on a farm deep in the Appalachian Mountains in the lowest population density county east of the Mississippi River. And uh, we'd gone off to visit our daughter over Christmas. And uh, we came back in early January and riding up the lane. Truthfully, we'd already heard from our caretaker about this. Otherwise, we would have been uh, surprised uh, out of our minds. Uh, riding in uh, on one of our fields on the left on the way into our farmhouse, what should be in the field but would look like a wild turkey only about six feet tall. I'm like, what? Uh, Sure enough, there's an emu on our farm. An emu, big, gigantic, ostrich-like bird, uh, not as long a neck, big and huge, and it was beautiful, had a colorful feather tail, very healthy its tail feathers were bouncing as it walked along <laughs> and uh, uh mr emu i didn't actually get up close enough to find out if it was mr or mrs emu but we just called him mr emu uh you know was at our farm for about four weeks uh at one field or another it would get into fights with the deer and run them off uh, the deer did not like the emu but the emu liked the deer, and we uh, we believe that the emu was eating uh, the deer droppings. 
and were and were following the deer around and eating in the same place as they were. And so, you know, people would come in and, you know, uh, there's a road runs through our farm to some other hunt camps and stuff behind us. Uh, and people say, God damn, did I see an ostrich or what the hell is that? And we tell them the story of the emu and all this sort of stuff. And we say, don't shoot it, right? And uh, and and we all sort of having a good time. You know, look at the emu, and that we've been warned: don't get too close to it because they're mean and nasty, right? And uh, mm-hmm. so I said he was around for quite a week. Came would come start coming by our house, even pretty close. Uh, got a couple of good pictures of him up close. And then in late January, we had a 2021. That would be we had a. Uh, you know, moderate snow, maybe 15 centimeters of snow on the ground, and it was fairly cold. And last thing we saw was Mr. Emu stalking by, walking in his kind of German goose-stepping style, uh, went by the house and off into the woods. And behind our farm is about 6,500 hectares of state game land, so it's kind of wild wilderness back in there, uh, though there are some fields. And uh, we saw Mr. Emu heading off into the bush. I wonder what that means. And we didn't ever saw him again, and nobody else ever heard from him again. So that was the end of the story. And so I guess the final update is, yeah. uh, you know, he disappeared into the bush. Well, yeah, he just disappeared. He went in the spirit well, Jim. <laughs> so so Jim, the portal back Jim sends me a photo. Jim sends me a photo of this emu and says, what does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, so we ended up having to do another show and talk about it. Um, yeah, we, we were doing all kinds. Of, I was trying to get him to try and figure out what it means. He did his ego death thing live on the show, and his eyes went all weird and glassy like a china doll. Because he can just switch off his ego for a few seconds. He's got that uh, neurotechnology thing he's learned how to do. And, yeah, that's um, a kind of a cool trick. I really like doing it. And he wanted that's to fun. see what sort of messages would come through, and nothing came through. And then he meditated on it for weeks every day. Nothing, yeah. absolutely nothing. nothing. So, in the yeah. updates, apart from he just went, disappeared. Nope, unfortunately. Uh, you'll, I, don't nothing. Know, I don't think we've talked since then, but uh, I have taken up regular meditation, something I've never done. And uh, as part of my preparation for my. Uh, uh, five-episode podcast arc with John Verveke and his Awakening uh, from the Meaning Crisis video actually took up meditating with the Sam Harris uh, Waking Up app. He did and, the Sam Harris app. Goodness me. Yeah, yeah well, I figured he's an atheist and a cognitive scientist. How much of a quack can he be, right? And, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, and people say, well, what are you trying to get out of meditation? I say, well, I want to learn how to fly, and I want to be able to point my finger at people and make them uh, keel over dead. And so far, I haven't been able to accomplish either one. Uh, no but, superpowers. Uh, uh, no superpowers. But I would say, you know, it seems to help a bit. And then I would, I would <laughs> add, uh, you know, at least one significant thing. But, you know, as uh, people who know me know, I am a... Uh, uh, sort of a pretty hardcore realist, and he remains skeptical, though in, interested in inquiring about the spirit world. So that's, uh, yeah. that's why I'm, I'm always interested in uh, in your thoughts about these things. So, what, you know, can you put a, a, a yarn or a tail around Mr. Emu heading out into the deep bush? Uh, that that these see these things take a we, we got real slow tech around this. This these are all psychotechnologies. You know, for us, uh, story and ritual and ceremony and all these things, it, it happens collectively in groups over a very long time. 
Um, so yeah, you can't do it uh, unilaterally, and you can't just you can't do it quickly. It's uh, it's slow tech this one, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Well, I'll take what you ponder on it. You look into the yeah, into yeah, the fire I, late I, at I, night. And, I, I, look, and, I, I think that's that's going that's going somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. I do. It, uh, we, we, it, I mean, this uh, uh, Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab that we started up this year at Deakin, and and one of the fellows there, fellows, senior fellows, um, and we were doing some writing together. Um, it was about scale, I think. Yeah, we were doing our take on scale, and we were going deep into all the lore and getting to scale and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and we ended up in this part of how the how the new stories get done. Because we know the old stories, but then there's new stories as well. And so as I'm typing about that, he starts clapping these boomerangs together. And, and he starts singing this song. It was a song cycle from Ritual. And it was about, uh, it's only 100 years old, this song. And it happened uh, when they started planting out the cane fields and just killing all that land with all the cane fields there. But then there was a cane beetle. So they introduced the cane toad to eat the cane beetle. But he didn't eat the beetle. He took off everywhere else. And, you know, that cane toad has the poison sack, so it started poisoning water holes and all these animals were dying and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, so part of bringing it into that system was making a dreaming for it. And so they did a song cycle. And he was singing that song for me, clap, clap, singing that song in his language. And, um, yeah, so we were, I was writing like that the other day. Um, but that's, so these new stories come through like that, but it takes a, it takes a long time for, for it to happen. Because uh, it's it's basically you're singing the entire system, and how the cane toads are going to come in and fit within the system. Now, so it was kind of like part of it was about teaching the crows, you know, to flip them over and eat the eat the belly, and avoid the poison sacs. And it was you know trying to convince all of the goannas not to eat <laughs> the cane toads because it was killing them, and um, you know all the land management things for keeping the toads out of the waterways and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so all of that sort of came in there, but yeah, that, that ritual technology, that's, it's, it's slow tech. It takes a long time and a lot of minds working on it at once. Um, I thought it'd be great if we could do it unilaterally and overnight and just launch the next day. You know, um, some things can't be, uh, can't be hurried. Yeah. That's nine things to learn about Jim Rutt's emu. I could get that out in a blog in like 10 minutes. Yeah, we'll yeah. let it percolate. We'll let it percolate when the when the ideas come. The ideas come. Well, let's move on here to some of the topics they wanted us to talk about. Uh, and uh, you know, the first one you already mentioned. In fact, it was uh, uh, my number one takeaway from Sand Talk, which it's an idea which I have just flat out stolen, though I do give credit. So, uh, and that is this idea of humans as custodial species. This is huge mm. to my mind, right? This, you know, you know, the idea, I mean, I'm going to put it in rut speak, uh, and then I'd love to just open it up uh, for you to, uh, to yarn on about it a little bit, which is uh, in rut speak, humans are the first general intelligence, the first species that can sort of do almost anything, giving, giving us enough time. Of course, uh, we don't have wisdom yet, so we have the power of gods without the wisdom of gods, which is a little scary. Uh, but... Uh, since we are the first over the line, we can make or break our planet. Uh, Tyson's idea is that we are the custodians, the janitors of our planet. Uh, we are now responsible for the care and well-being of our planet. 
And uh, this, to my, my mind, is a huge idea. And if this were to ever become culturally current, we might actually survive as a species. If it doesn't, we may well not. Well, we need to remove the idea of intellectual property from it then first. Because if that's yeah. just, as I believe, is if that's our ecological niche, then you can't exactly put a patent on that. Yeah, you can't sure, be sure, citing sure. people every time you like mention the ecological niche of the, you know, I'm an organism in this species, but I can't say what it is that I do because Tyson said it first. You have to no, send a nickel to Tyson every time you say yeah. custodial species, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want a dollar every time somebody looks after the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe the son of a bitch will get a haircut if they do that, right? <laughs> hey, no, I finished. I got a haircut. It's like a foot off it. I cut all uh, my COVID, cut all my COVID hair off. I even <laughs> shaved for you, Jim. I cut this uh, one in a Zoom meeting. Geez, they got uh, scared when I just suddenly started cutting my hair. But it's very good. It's very effective. It's better than a mirror. Anyway, look, uh, yeah, that's our ecological niche. Our ecological niche is that we can um, walk alongside all of the other niches. You know, we're, we're, we have the capacity to see and be across entire systems and to guide these things. And, um, you know, when there are changes and upheavals, you know, actually help uh, keep moving things towards, you know, some kind of homeostasis, you know, when things go, uh, things go wrong, which they do quite regularly. We've been through a lot of apocalypses as human beings. Uh, just on this continent here, we've been through about 12 of them. You know, we've had heaps of apocalypses. It's, um, they happen all the time. That, it, it's, it's not a big deal. Apocalypse is part of how things work. You know? <laughs> yeah. it's, you, it's, it's impressive that the you know, uh, Aboriginal people of Australia have been living for, what, what did they figure, 50, 55,000 years or so mm. in, in more or less one place. Uh, though, as you point out, things happen. And uh, at least what I've read, the Aboriginal people uh, have been quite active in managing the landscape. In fact, uh, I, I saw a quite interesting article that said that uh, uh, the Australian uh, folk uh, maybe the uh, society one, uh, the, the step closest uh, society closest to modern in terms of its energy utilization and it, but it's all in one thing which is the fire forming of the environment mm. uh, you know the uh, especially in the western parts of Australia but I believe most of that central area if not up in your part up in the north uh, the yeah, Aboriginal definitely. folks have been using fire in a major way to uh, to groom the landscape for both uh, nature and humans. Yeah, and it's it's very um, it's very complex because you can't just burn everywhere all at once. You know, you got to be very careful. It's um, ends up being a mosaic pattern, and you don't burn in the same place twice. You know, uh, within one cycle. You know, and um, you know it depends on the soil. Like, is it a light soil that reflects heat? Is it a dark soil that absorbs heat? What's the seed bank doing? What kind of smoke does it need? What kind of fire does it need? Um, you know, so you do cool burns, you do hot burns, all different kinds, uh, depending on what you need to do in those places uh, to care for the landscape. But it's, it's really complicated. Um, yeah, there's a real science to it. Um, there is a Fire Sticks Alliance that's doing some good work at making sure that everybody recovers that knowledge all over the continent now. And, um, you know, you've got lots of communities that are that are able to uh, take up this practice again, which is good because uh, when you do that, it actually sequesters more carbon uh, than it burns. 
um, you know, with uh, the growth that it stimulates. And, you know, we're not the only ones to do it. I was talking to a Dutchman recently, Jim. That Dutchman, um, yeah, they, he, he had that from his uh, great-grandfather, the burning practices. And that's that uh, salamander story. You know that uh, that mythology of the salamander it can't be burned by fire. fire. Yeah, yeah, the fire. He creature, was saying right? he's saying no, no, that's a that's a seasonal, that's a seasonal indicator. That story is to tell you when to burn uh, heather, you know, because you got to burn all the heather and, and and there's all this weird stuff that goes on with the birds that lay their eggs. And it's got to be in the right season or when they're nesting and it's got to clear it out. But after the pH has been increased by the all the dung from the baby birds. And then the, the ash sort of, you know, it settles down the pH again. There's all this balanced stuff that happens. But you've got to burn it at exactly the right time when you see these flowers appear and these insects appear. That's the sign to burn. Because when you burn it, then that's the signal for the salamanders to come up out of the ground from hibernation, from the winter. And because they're not burning anymore, the salamander population is low, low now. Because humans have always there been in that ecological niche. You know, there's a symbiosis there now because the humans burn the land at that time in that season and that's the signal for them to come up. And now they're not all coming up. A lot of them are staying under the ground and they die down there now. So the numbers have gone down. Mm, you know, so uh, he starts yeah. burning off at the right time and then the salamanders come back there. And then those birds that are now extinct, you know, there's still heaps of them in Sweden. He reckons that they see the smoke or smell the smoke, and so those birds have come back in, you know. Um, yeah, they're reintroducing wolves in there, all kinds of things. It's amazing. Anyway, uh, so, you know, this is something that all human. this is a human thing. Most of the things that people sort of see as, you know, exotic, uh, indigenous, you know, primitive, ancient, or whatever word you want to put, you know, this is things that uh, people were doing up until very recently. So this man, Michel Grubay, his great-grandfather was burning the land in that way when he was a kid. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't, that lo- it wasn't that long ago that, you know, this is something that most humans were doing. And they still do it here in the U.S. Uh, for uh, pest control purposes in certain kinds of environments. Uh, yeah. You know, with the insects get out of control, you burn off a field and uh, they'll come back, you know, just as well or better, gets rid of weeds, etc. But I think... Yeah. I think the, I think one of the things that's really important, and I've heard you talk about this uh, before, is that these kinds of cultures, whether they're the Dutchmen or whether they're the, uh, you know, your Appalach clan, uh, they live in high context. Right? There's a, a tremendous amount of nuance as you were starting to relate. You know, this relates to that. That relates to this. And if you don't understand the whole pattern, you know, you're like a bull in a china shop. Uh, and, you know, what is... What is industrial agriculture where you plant by the calendar, irrespective of the weather or anything else, but kind of a lope context way, just sort of hammering yeah. the world with a hammer. Maybe you could uh, uh, yarn on a bit about the idea of high context and low context. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a really, that's a pretty basic version of it. There are, I mean, there's, of course, better, well, you've read the, um, What's his name? The one who wrote the weird, weirdest people on earth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Joe Henrik. He, Henrik. Yeah. Yeah, we had him on great, the podcast. Great book. Yeah. yeah. So he has, um, you know, he he's got a really good summary of all the research that's been done around that kind of thing. You know, over the last few decades, there are, but the the kind of pop science, you know, way to talk about it, which is, let's face it, that's what I do. It's um, 
No, it's not pop science. It's more like hipster science, I think, is my market niche. In that one, you know, the, the best way to talk to people about it is high context and low context cultures. You know, so high context cultures, you are, um, you know, it's, you're basically doing systems thinking. You know, you are, you know, so they do that classic test. And he talks about it in his book, you know, where they, where they you know, you show a kid a, a picture of, of a duck in a pond. And like, you know, some kids from some, from most cultures in the earth, um, a lot of kids are going to look at that and go, ah, oh, yeah, well, it's a pond and it's winter and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's in a forest, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, this time of day and there's a duck in there, <laughs> you know, and that's high context. Whereas like, uh, you more weird kids with the, you know, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, you know, they tend to call those cultures more low context because those are the kids who go, that's a picture of a duck. Next, show me the next picture. I want to get as many of these right as I can in five minutes. <laughs> I got to get a high score. God damn it! I'm going to finish up in jail. I'm going to be unemployed. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> so that's uh, that's your low context, um, <laughs> you know, culture. But really, it's not really a culture. It's a it's an economic system. It's a um, it's a sort of a labor market. It's an educational institution thing, you know, that's, you know, anybody who, you know, really, really goes through that, and you, you can't call it a Western education, it's more of a, I don't know, liberal education, or what is it, it's everywhere on the planet now, anyone who goes through it will end up with um, a lower context kind of reasoning, you know, when they, when they get through that. That's, that, uh, that's all the weird stuff that came out of, like, uh, you know, Germany and Prussia and you know, all around that area in the, you know, from the 1700s to, you know, right up to, you know, uh, the, the turn of that last century, right up until the start of the 1900s. It was all really weird stuff going on there with experiments, you know, and, and they put together that uh, sister education system there, uh, that public education system, you know, and they put it together based on animal husbandry techniques you know, you basically, you lock up the young in the daylight hours. You know, this is how you tame a wild animal. You know, you lock up the young in the daylight hours away from their parents. You uh, give them a little stimulation, very little stimulation in confined space. And you get them to perform useless tasks, purposeless tasks with uh, using rewards and punishments. And you'll end up with a good domesticated, stupid, fat, compliant sort of being a very low context kind of <laughs> animal. You know, um, and all of the education stuff that came out of there was weird. Um, and it was, it was all mixed in with, at the same time, this weird longing for a kind of a return to some kind of wild state that had been lost, this romanticization of, um, you know, or this exoticization of other cultures, Eastern cultures, you know. Um, it's kind of a, it might have been a hangover from the ancient Greeks. They were obsessed with the Hyperboreans, you know. They like made up this culture and they were like doing ethnographies of the Celts and going, oh, that's such a noble savage, you know, with the perfect civilization. And it's good to study them to remember what it is to be, you know, a perfect human. We can aspire towards that. Well, some of them were saying that other people were saying, no, they're just dirty savages. Kill them. Um, you know, as always, you got both sides. <laughs> so anyway, all that weird stuff, you know, came through you know, around the sort of Germanic regions over that, over that sort of long period. 
He ended up with all these middle-class kids becoming wonder vogels and, and roaming the countryside, like plundering the cultures of peasants, you know, to try and find something authentic. And, and, and then they're all doing seances. You remember that stuff? You know, in the Victorian era, and then after yeah, yeah. That, table right tapping, up, and yeah. right up to the 1920s, they're all doing seances and and weird stuff and sex parties, and and they're and they're taking fly garlic mushrooms, and they're like, um, you know, they're all wearing turbans and shit. They're everywhere. Every other guy had a fez. <laughs> you know, they were doing all that weird stuff, and Madame Blavatsky was out there, and she was like. You know, like a spirit medium channeling, writing all these massive volumes of books about, oh, there's this lost Aryan race, you know, um, you know, and and the Jews are no good. The Jews are kind of evil. And, and then there's all these sort of lower races over here. And, you know, she's like spirit writing all this sort of stuff. And then everybody was into it. Hitler was into it. Gandhi was into it. You know, um, the whole anthroposophy sort of thing came out of, you know, people who were going nuts over her writings and having sex parties and, and seances in, in weird, weird Victorian mansions back in the day. And so, you know, you ended up with all this uh, sort of weird alternative education coming out at the same time and all these weird philosophies. Um, oh, there, there was some strangeness coming out of that region. Um, you know, and that goes right through to all of it, all the, the Bildung stuff. That's not to say that there's nothing good in it, but it is... Uh, Jim, like you say, there's a lot of spirit stuff in there that'll make you want to get your gun. Yeah, it's, a lot, uh, a lot it, of weird, a lot of weird patnicity sort of <laughs> sort of stuff happening in there. Yeah, so interesting. The uh, you know, the way I like to think about it is that we're in this uh, the the modern Western culture is in a, a kind of pretty schizophrenic state, and then on one side you have uh, this rigid money on money return sausage factory school system uh called yeah. the John Dewey uh uh you know uh, thread which is you know squeezes the juice out of everything and prepares people to work on an assembly line tightening a bolt now those jobs have long since uh, gone to China and so we've uh, kind of left our people badly prepared for the modern world in any case but even in, in the days when it, when it was perhaps economically appropriate, it certainly did not build a complete person. Uh, on the other hand, you have, you know, screwball stuff. You know, as you say, people just make up wacky stuff, right? The, yeah. Uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, the Rudolf Steiners and people of that sort. You know, at, at some level, uh, I, I think from a philosophical and history of ideas, you can say a lot of this is, rom is the romanticism, the romantic... Uh, uh, rejection or reaction against the Enlightenment tradition, and it's people kind of just making it, making something up and pillaging mm. ideas from around the world, and uh, kind of you know wishing the world were a certain way and acting as if maybe it was. And yeah, uh, well, and, do, are you are you coming across the odd co carpet popping up in? Because I'm coming across them here and there in the complexity game B you know, sense making, you know, all of that sort of milieu. You get you get these these ones pop up from time to time who who are doing that. It's like they have a hypothesis and they sort of get excited about it and, and sort of weave it together and connect it to as many disciplines and things as possible. They put together a bunch of really good memes and then they launch. You know, they haven't done the work of, of actually trying to form it into any kind of theory. Um I think yeah, I just described. I think I've just described what I'm doing. 
<laughs> in a weird way. Yeah, I'm not sort of, sure. I'm not guilty you know, of that. They, they offer, you know, they, like they offer a, um, you know, here's this critique of, of the, the, the civilization where it is, and it's terrible. It's all, you know, it, it was better at some stage, and now it's terrible, and, and now, you know, we're going to make the new thing. And, and here's here's my 12-step list to fixing that. You know what I mean? And they sell that and they then they get all and it's all gurus and there's people following them and there's people defending them and attacking them and it's just this big swirling mess of of, of shit. Have you have you come across any have you noticed any of that around? Oh, for sure. Because I've seen that, at least at least a dozen of them out there doing that. You know, this yeah, I saw is, one just one of them just like, showed up the other you know, day, right? Uh, it didn't I, I, end I, I, in the nineteen nineteen forties or anything or the nineteen sixties. That that's kept going. It's it's escalated, if anything. You know, I think the sign, for me at least, of, uh, of that tendency, which those people's hearts sometimes are in the right place, uh, but uh, they're, they're, they're what I call right-only devices. They want to tell you about what their grand scheme is, when yeah. in reality, uh, at least my thinking, is that this is a joint exploration together, a community, a large community of people who are trying different things, communicating honestly with each other, horizontally, acknowledging what what doesn't work, yeah. uh, replicating what does work. This is an experiment in how we make it to the future. We don't know. Anyone tells you they got the answer, uh, you know. That's, yeah, it. that's the community. That's the community. But, you know, it, that community is an attractor. It's a basin yeah. of attraction for carpetbaggers, snake salesmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah they come in. And they're like, they pick off the weak ones around the edges of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why you need a few old bulls, right? Like you yeah, and yeah. me, who are like, put our heads yeah. down and go, all right, motherfucker, gotta die. Yeah, I'm, gonna, just, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put you, you on the wrong spot. You shouldn't be at the center of this. You know, what, you know what we need to do? We need to deploy all the Stoics. We need to get the Stoics to form a perimeter. You know, get, get, that, uh, get that semi-permeable membrane happening there. Get all the Stoics around the perimeter, just just checking people as they come in. Just see yeah, what's that. in the carpet bag first. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. I, I there's, some, there's some good Stoics there's some good Stoics in the community. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, I've really enjoyed talking to those ones. Yeah, Peter Lindbergh and his gang. Uh, oh, yeah, he's, he's great. The Stoics are fantastic. Them. Yeah, that, and the, you know, they're, they're certainly part of the Game B movement. And as you say, they, they serve a very important role of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's really hard to bullshit a stoic, right? <laughs> That's one of the great things about them. Right? <laughs> it is because they'll just accept it. Mm-hmm. They go, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the other person I like a lot in that regard is Jamie Wheel. He's quite the opposite of oh, a yeah. stoic, uh, yeah. but he uh, he's done a lot of interesting thinking about uh, you know what what is, what is cultishness, and he has his uh, you know sort of anti cult checklists, which uh, yeah. encourage people people to look at because it is unfortunate that uh you know trying to do the work to collaboratively to, try that again collaboratively build a communication for evolving what comes next uh is unfortunately fertile ground for certain kinds of uh, cult leaders yeah. yeah and 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 many of them are narcissists and or sociopaths and this is where what you know a good solid culture needs to have deep um uh, immune systems against those, those takeovers. You know, one of my favorite yeah. writers on this is uh, Chris Boehm. He wrote a book called Hierarchy in the Forest. Uh, uh, yeah. He's an, 
famous anthropologist is, uh, and focuses on hunter-gatherer, forager folk. Uh, and uh, he makes the point that despite the fact that we're related to two uh, rather hierarchical species, bonobos and chimps, uh, humans in their forager days uh, were anti-hierarchical. In fact, his book really should have been called Anti-Hierarchy in the Forest. And mm. uh, these, uh, these folk uh, had many cases, uh, cultural ways, folk ways, uh, that laughed at the guys who wanted to think they were the big man. And then they would just ignore yeah. them and not, you know, they told me, okay, the big man tells me what to do. I just don't do it, right? And if he tries to get a couple of his buddies to enforce his will, well, guess what? Maybe uh, five of us will come up and kill him in the night. Uh, and so there was this 100,000-year-long uh, way of being uh, where a social operating system at the band level had evolved and spread across much of the world. Yeah. Uh, we we, we uh, don't like buses. Yeah, yeah. Basically, anti-buses. Yeah, we're yeah. inherently uh, egalitarian. But this only seems to work uh, at the Dunbar number, you know, 150 people or less. And, mm. you know, one, question, one of the big questions in our Game B thinking is how do you scale that up? Uh, mm. If you can, you know, now, now my own thought is that maybe you can't in some big sense, but so rather you build society from the smaller building blocks, right? If the, if the building blocks are 150 and smaller, then you can use the uh, forager ways of mm. keeping bosses in check. Uh, and mm. if, we, if we don't let the bosses arise at the forager, at the, you know, the 150, the Dunbar level, uh, then there's no place for them to, you know, gather their first uh, bits of power to move on up the uh, on up the chain. What are your thoughts about yeah. that? How we how do we? Uh... Well, I, I I just I think it just scales fractally. It's just cooperatives of cooperatives, basically is is how it's always worked here. Uh, that's how it's worked under our sort of uh, continental common law, in a way that's been able to maintain you know all the linguistic diversity in this part of the world. Um, you know, preventing, you know, because there, I mean, the sign of imperialism having occurred is you've got a massive nation where everyone speaks the same language. And th th that's how you know that you, you've had like uh, destructive warfare and multipolar traps going on for ages. Uh, but somehow Australia has managed to maintain, like, uh, if you ever see an Aboriginal languages map of Australia, it's like, you know, it's like 500, you know, little pieces, little quilt pieces on a big quilt, you know. Um, so we managed to maintain that, and it's quite simply through that, um, you know, um, fractal scaling. You know, so it's basically, you know, you as a person, as a sovereign, self-determining person, you are, nobody can boss you, but you're bound within these relations, with these, within these, re like, relationships and um, sort of, you know, fairly strict relational protocols. So that's your check and balance, you know, to that. You're networked, if you like. You know, so you've got this 150 people where that can work. Everybody, everything is, um, everything is transparent. You know, everybody knows what everybody's doing, so no one can get away with being, you know, a complete asshole or, you know, trying to boss people around or anything like that. That works in that unit. But then that scales up. You know, when with when you've got that 150 people there, they have a relationship with this 150 people over here, and then this, you know, so you get all those groups end up networked together in the same pattern as the individuals are networked within the original Dunbar, you know, and it keeps scaling up like that. So you have, you know, you are, 
your clans, your tribes, and then it goes or scales up to big regional groups. Um, like we have big regional collections of many tribes, you know, dozens, you know, or even like a, a hundred tribes, you know, sort of come together under Kuris or Murrays or Nangas, Nyungas, Bamas, you know, all, all these different kind of, uh, you know, um, big law categories there. And then those all network together. And so there's, um, you know, big ceremony and ritual where every, where people have to travel sometimes thousands of miles, you know, on regular cycles, you know, to come together to cement these relationships, to keep the trade going, you know, um, to adopt each other's children, you know, marry across into the different groups. This is, um, you know, this kind of embassy and trade's been going on forever. And you kind of, yeah, you kind of need to do it like that. You need to maintain that diversity all these little bioregional sort of groups, you know, who are unique and defined by the law of their land, the spirit of their bioregion, and then that kind of just scales up and syndicates. Um, yeah, that that's kind of how that works, and I think that's how Dunbar can scale. Um, but that's just my humble opinion. Yeah, I think, I'm, and, I think you're pretty much on it the there. Idea. Yeah, I, I like the idea of, uh, I think it's so important. Uh, I, I love the fact that you highlight, you know when the settlers have come, when everybody speaks the same language, right? And, and also, by the way, the houses look the same, the clothes look the same, the food yeah. is the same, right? When yeah. in re re reality, uh, nature is fractal and rich and local and emergent around local context. Uh, yeah. you, know, you know, even more wild than the, the uh, Australian Aboriginal language map is the New Guinea uh, language map, much smaller, 1,500 languages in, the, yeah. in, New, in New Guinea. And those were there for about as long as Australia. I mean, it's, again, 45,000, 50,000 year old cultures uh, that have that's, managed- That's huge. I was, we, we were talking the other night, me and Dave Snowden were talking to a fellow from Papua. Um, yeah, we, we were in, I don't know, some panel we were on together, webinar, and yeah, we were talking to Merv Wilkinson from Papua, and he was, yeah, he was talking about the same thing. And he was talking about, talking about that system of laws that they've always had there. And, but he's actually, you know, he's a, a sort of a big corporate consultant now, this fellow, because he takes those uh, messages and those ideas and, you know, and um, basically takes them in to make your organization sort of more effective and agile, which is pretty cool. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind connecting me to that dude, I'd love to chat with him. Yeah, I will. Merv Wilkinson. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know what I've read, but I've never actually spoken to Papan. And I'd love to learn more about that because, again, it's, uh, uh, you know, coherent pluralism uh, in the mo almost most yeah. extreme form imaginable. It's been... Uh, meta stable. I mean, they constantly they've constantly warred with each other, but on the other hand, they married across, and it, it's this very yeah. interesting dynamic meta operating system that operates at multiple levels. Let's well, that, just that's, that's the that's the weird thing that so so me and Dave Snowden are doing a we're doing a kind of an embassy b between like Indigenous Wales and Indigenous Australia, and then on each subsequent webinar, we bring in Indigenous people from other places, and we just talk complexity. It's <laughs> that's pretty perfect. exciting. So yeah. we, we did um, identity and economics last week, and it was just really cool to have a Papuan man's um, you know take on that. Yeah, a Papuan uh, management consultant. Now there's a concept for you. Uh, yeah, that's know, it. It'd be very lovely, interesting. But uh, I'd like to you know turn back a little bit to you talked about this uh, fractal 
uh, organization of uh, of peoples from you know Dunbar numbers and of course Dun you know I had Dunbar on my uh, podcast recently and you know he, he makes the point yeah. that there there isn't just one Dunbar number at 150 there's also uh, smaller numbers also 50 15 five and one and a half you know that's it uh, that's it that was, I thought it was a hilarious idea but uh, on the upside going to the larger scale in mm. the uh, Australian indigenous uh, traditions. How are decisions made at those higher levels? Is it democracy? Is it consensus? Is it something entirely different? It's um, like traditionally, it's it's see, it's it's weird because you're not the only. You don't consider yourselves to be the only sentient minds there. You know, so you're everything you do is within a, a, the landscape. Uh, the governance system's not separated from a landscape that's considered sentient. Uh, the economic system's not separate from the landscape that's considered sentient. Um, you know, there are a thousand signs at, at any given time, you know, what the ants are doing. Um, you know, like, you know, it, how the ants are moving and what they're doing, what colored rocks they're putting on their nests. They're not just, they're not superstitious signs. They're things that'll tell you about weather events coming. And there's pretty much, you know, the land makes it clear where you're supposed to move on to. You know, so basically it's everybody's sort of out there, you know, collecting data uh, in the landscape and then coming together um, and having the big yarns, you know, where everybody, you know, shares the data that they have from their movements in the landscape. And that picture forms, you know, pretty much an obvious, an obvious pattern of what you're supposed to do, to do next. It's like, well, we're going to have to move to the coast you know, to follow that mullet run now, you know, and that'll be, you know, the elders who have authority, but not power because power is distributed throughout the group. The elders who have authority, you know, they might pipe up and say, yeah, but you're not looking at that cloud over there. Uh, you might want to wait a couple of weeks for that mullet run. Um, and I'm worried about these signs. There might be a red tide. So maybe we'll move away from the coast. This, You know what I mean? The elders have that authority of long experience. So people will listen to them. But at the same time, you know, the decisions are sort of made um, collectively, but in a weird way with, you know, human and non-human intelligence uh, operating yeah. together. Because you are part of the system and the system is moving you as much as you are caring for it. You know, um, it's it's very reciprocal and it's really hard to explain. <laughs> No, I'm, starting, I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to see it. So let me, let yeah. me just ask a question or two. So um, this idea, uh, again, this idea of the custodial species kind of goes both ways, right? Not mm. only do we take care of uh, uh, the natural world, but the natural world tells us things that are useful. Mm. Now, is, is each uh, member of uh, the culture... Uh, equally skilled at reading nature or are there specialists who uh, through long experience or personal characteristics are generally perceived by other folks as better at reading the signs uh, you know how, how does that communication uh, how is it modulated between coming back from nature into the human system mm. well you know like every every 10 year old kid's got a PhD in biology you know basically there's you know, so there's that basic knowledge, that sort of kindergarten level knowledge, which is about where I, where I am, 
<laughs> is um you know everybody there's that common knowledge that everybody has but then there's there is specialized knowledge um so you your family group or a particular line in your family will have a, a totemic relation to very particular things you know so you might be you know so i don't know jim you might be around you know emu and then you know, this kind of substance, uh, this kind of season, um, and this other kind of tree over here, <laughs> you know, and they might be, that might be the totemic group of entities that you understand best. And there'll be big story for that. And you'll carry all the law and all the songs for all the systems that come out of that symbiotic relation between, um, uh, those things, that season, those animals, those, those plants, those substances, you know, and that will be your thing, you know, and so when people want to approach that place or, you know, they want to do something involving any of those species, they'll ask you. And That's you'll let them you know if that. it's the right well, time actually... when you can do it, um, when it's not. And so then you have this dynamic subordination for decision-making because as your entire group is moving through the landscape, you're moving through different places where different members have the best knowledge. You know, Interesting. for that that place, and anything new that comes in, so any new inventions, you know, or any new species that might come in. So the cane toad song I mentioned earlier, you know, um, that will find a place. So it has to it has to find somewhere in the moiety division. So it has to find a side, you know, whether it's light blood or heavier blood or however you you know uh, delineate those things. You know, it'll it'll be in this category or that category. And then it'll go into a particular clan and a particular family, and that will come under there. They will have the song for that. There'll be a song cycle for that. So a song cycle for tobacco, for steel, uh, for the cane toad, like I said, for water buffalo, for pig, uh, for dog. Uh, my family took on the dog totem. Um, yeah, these things uh, go on. I, I know people who have um, uh, anchor and machete in their totemic system because there's song for that and ceremony for that, because these are technologies that have come in, you know? Um, and there are, there are, <laughs> goodness me, there are some groups of elders who are, um, who are starting to put together, um, you know, song cycles for, uh, you know, moving towards things like AI and things like that, which is getting really interesting. Um, you know, it's not there yet because these things take time and there's a lot of information that's needed first. Uh, but I've been in there talking up like, you know, I, like I think Frankenstein, I think the Jewish golem story and I think Frankenstein, these are all origin origin myths for AI. <laughs> so I've been talking up the, those stories to elders. So I wonder if there'll be like a Frankenstein corroboree or something one day for, um, you know, yeah, those kinds of things. Yeah, well, I think one of the great takeaways from that is that the, the system is open-ended, right? It... it, mm. it it can, in theory at least, deal with whatever turns up, uh, though uh, an, an interesting issue that comes to mind. Uh, you know, I recently had Heather Haying on the podcast, and we talked about uh, uh, her book, Hunter Gatherers in the 21st Century, I think it's titled something like that. And one of the uh, big themes of the book is that... Hunter Gatherer's Guide. Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century yeah, yeah. by Heather Hang and Brett uh, Weinstein. And um, 
one of the main themes of the book is that the modern world and the you know hyper modern world is driving us to ever escalating hyper novelty uh yeah. and and you know something radically new every you know it was every generation now it seems like it's every four or five years and uh you know the metaverse is the, you know the great hyped next great thing we're all going to disappear into virtual reality uh uh, and if the clock times of this kind of natural human yarn making, storytelling, song weaving is generations, how the hell do we use our natural human capacity to make sense in this collective sense that you were alluding to? Yeah. And well, it's in a in a world of hyper novelty, and I'm you know more and more starting to turn you know Mennonite. Uh, you know, the ruts originally were Mennonites way back yonder. And of course I was one of the devils that helped build the internet. So I've part of the, part of the problem here, but I'm starting to think that, uh, uh, you know, maybe we need to say, yo, slow down people because our sense making is just out of whack. It's, it takes way longer to, you know, is Facebook a good idea or not? You know, it might take generations to figure that out. Uh, how the yep. hell can we live in a world of hyper novelty uh, using this kind of indigenous sense making that you're talking about? What do we do? How do we yeah. handle this? Well, it's it's weird because it, it requires actual group identities, <laughs> like actual group identities where there is a fluid self other boundary between you and the people in your you know, family, village, group, you know, um, that's what that requires. <laughs> but we don't have that because we're all fractured now, you know. Um, yeah, with, with the sort of social fragmentation that's been part of, you know, neoliberalism over the last four decades, is everybody's just an individual now. And so people's group identities are really just demographic profiles that sort of mark them as this fabulous identity or set of intersections or or whatever or, or this no good one or you know this one that has privileges this one that doesn't this one that has ious that one that's supposed to pay the ious and doesn't want to <laughs> it's all these weird we're all hyper individualized and at the same time that kind of neoliberal framework it, it demands that we're constantly relentlessly self-improving because God forbid we should have a village or a family or God worse, an employer or oh, even worse, a state, someone who's going to look after us and take care, of, you know, maybe provide us out. No, you've got to be onto it all the time. You've got to manage yourself. You've got to grow yourself. You've got to grow your brand. You're a little mini corporation under yourself. You've got to grow brand rut. You've got to let people know what you're all about. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to like, you know, get out there. You've got to manage your image and all these sorts of things. And um, I don't know. I think that's the thing that, that really, I don't know that we connect on more than anything is that you and I are both people who could not give a shit about what our brand looks like. <laughs> you know yeah, if I mean? you don't like me, fuck not, you and the horse you rode in. I'm only interested in personal <laughs> PR, you know, um, and like, I don't know, probably to, I don't know, to our detriment, you know, in the marketplace. But then how interested are you in that? You know, I don't know you can Got basically, it. you know, you, you, you got a farm in the mountains, you're good. You know, someone comes up your driveway and they don't beat the horn and 
you're going to find a bit of lead coming their way. You know, you're all good. <laughs> I, just, I just love it, man. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the endless, relentless PR and marketing. You know, originally that was something that was invented, you know, um, you know, to control people, you know, buy and for business and, and buy and for the state. Um, you know, it was this psychotechnology. It's invented to be able to, you know, manipulate people this way and that way. But then I guess, you know, with the technologies, the, the other communication technologies we have now, those tools are in everyone's hands. It's like this WMD. You know, everybody has, everybody's a little Edward Bernays. We all got access to these, these terribly destructive tools that, you know, of, of PR and marketing. And we're all deploying it for our own brand. And we're all, ah, oh, we're all relentlessly self-improving and doing all this personal development and bloody, you know, trying to self-actualize and self-actualize and gain that edge, you know, when it's, it's not in there. That's, you know, we're, oh, we're going to look inwards and really critically self-examine our stuff and take a big inventory. And then we're going to sit and, and bloody meditate into our navels and do a passion retreat. And then we're going to do this and we're going to do breath work and we're going to, I'm going to become the best person I can be. I'm Wim Hof here, breathing. I'm going to take a cold shower and I'm going to read this book. You know, I don't even read these books anymore. If I want to, like, find out what an author's... I'll, I'll call the author, I'll talk to him myself. I don't know. It's just... That's not where it is. It's in your relationships. It's in your connections. Like what you always talk about is conviviality, Jim. I was going to say know, that. But it's, it's in our relationships together. That's where the knowledge is. That's where the growth is. That's where the health is. I felt like shit ten minutes ago because I'm on my own, like... Um, you know, prepping for a, a, a bloody interview, trying to get the kids nappy changed, messing around, trying to clean up the house, and I was in bad mood. Come in, connect with Jim, even on a screen. You know, I feel better already. You know, I'm not thinking about, like, you know, oh, my God, you know, that terrible thing about myself that I don't like, and I'm never going to escape it, and he didn't like me, and they didn't grow me up the right way, and they were mean to me. And that uncle... I can kill that uncle if I ever see him. He shouldn't have done that to me. Um, you don't think about that stuff it, at all. You're um, that's just poison. That's like the, you're not going to find anything good in there. That's not where you are. You're not in there. You're out there. You're in your relationship with place, with land, and all the humans and non-humans you're in relation with. And when you cut off from that, that's when you get poison. And you can do all kinds of tricks to fool yourself into thinking that you're getting well and that you're getting smarter and that you're becoming a freaking Sigma male or whatever John Wick piece of crap you want to turn yourself into so that you can, like, snag yourself a tier one girlfriend or whatever the hell you're fantasizing about. But it's just bullshit. It's just all carpetbagging. And that brings us back to the gurus. I, I, did, have, I did have a list of all the things to be able to identify those, those, those grifters, you know, and then, and one of the, and, but, but every time I get a, I start to get a list together, you meet someone who doesn't fit with the list. That's why I'm they have doing a new, an they have a new scam, right? I'm doing an anti-list thing. Oh, you got someone like it used to be, I said, all right, if they're selling supplements, they're a fucking grifter. 
<laughs> you know, if they're selling a line of supplements, they're a grifter. But then I meet these awesome people who are actually doing, they're selling some, they're selling some pretty cool supplements and they're, and they're good people. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Well, they're not gurus and they're doing supplements and they're kind of all right. So that, that doesn't fit anymore. You, you, just avoid heuristics. You know, you never use a heuristic for longer than 10 minutes. You know, if you need it for longer than 10 minutes, you're no longer being responsive to your context. Be aware of your context and responsive to it. That shit shifts really quick. And if you're stuck in a heuristic, which is, you know, sometimes a good mental tool and will help you out with a bit of heavy lifting, I don't know, don't get married to it. Things change. Yeah, that's very good. You know, heuristics are central. I mean, the world is way too high order complex to actually think it through algorithmically. We need heuristics, rules of thumb. That's it. But we need to be, con and this is where <laughs> high context, this idea, the fact that you're in, uh, sincerely engaged with your world in a face-to-face, -face, yeah. you know, toes in the soil kind of way, and you're yeah. getting feedback from the land and your 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 group, your posse, right? Uh, yeah. You know, and this is where we hope to be going with our Game B movement to proto-Bs, where we're creating communities on the ground of not more than 300 people, uh, probably better, 150. And, you know, you know, if Rutt gets too full of himself, uh, the, his face-to-face -face community is say, hey, boy, you know, you're getting awful full of yourself, you piece of shit, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, why don't you back off a little bit, right? Uh, there's other people around here besides you, right? Uh, and you know, your face-to-face -face community can tell you that. And yeah. uh, and but on the other hand, someone tells me that on Twitter, I'm going to get up in their up in their grill, right? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but somebody I hang out with, drink beer with, uh, you know, swap lies with, uh, go fishing with, you know, they can tell me whatever the hell they want. And I'm going to take it seriously. Yeah. That's it. And you see, I mean, I could, I mean, every time I think I found like a piece of solid ground to stand on, so you know, like uh, growth, you know, growth-based economic systems, you know, they're evil, no good. You know, so does that make me a degrowth person? Like, oh, immediately I've got to shift to that side. Ah, oh, ah, oh, I've bloody done this. And then what am I going to hagel my way into the middle or some weird German shit like that? It, straight away you get married to something. And, and I found myself in that trap. But that Catherine Collins got me out of it. That when I started to like binarize that growth and degrowth sort of thing and, and take a side. You know, on that, she got me out of it uh, with that thing she got in trouble for. You know, when she got a big drubbing for it's on CNN or something, and she did that metaphor she does, where she goes, Well, you know, you can gain 20 pounds because you're pregnant and it's wonderful, you know, but you can also gain 20 pounds from eating too much pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a metaphor for like whether growth is good or bad. And it's like, Well, neither and both. <laughs> <laughs> which is your thing all the time. Exactly. So you're always like, uh, yeah, no, it's neither. But if you ever offered a forced choice, usually it's probably a bit of both. You know, is it nature or nurture? Well, it's probably a bit of both. Almost or always, neither. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. So anyway, I like, I like the way she did that. But she made everyone mad because then the growth people were mad, the degrowth people were mad. Well, that's oh, almost she's certainly... fat shaming. <laughs> Uh, and then there's perfect. people like it's like, well, what am I? Do I have a right to have a baby as well? You're talking about babies. What, and what about this? You know, and you're fat shaming people. And I don't know. Me and Jimmy are going well. As gentlemen of girth, <laughs> any offence at that at all? We know. 
if you know it's getting hard to tie your shoelaces and your kidneys hurt that you've probably done some damage to yourself there's nothing beautiful about that yeah I, 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 could eat, I could eat kale and distilled water and live to be 112 but why yeah that's it <laughs> well, you do like those macaroons yeah, you always use the the fat boy with the macaroons jar yeah. metaphor. Exactly right. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's life, right? You make your choices. You you know you pick your horse and you ride it, and uh, and I have no regrets, right? It uh, it is what it is. Uh, that's it. Uh, let me see what else do we want to chat about here. Oh yeah, this is some talk about conviviality and on the ground society, uh, uh, and one of the things that uh, I miss. Uh, I was just a little too, uh, you know, probably a couple of generations too old for, but I know indigenous people have, you know, have held on to this a tremendous amount, are manhood and womanhood initiations and rites. Uh, you know, you hear all this talk about fucking snowflakes who are, you know, uh, you know don't have any courage, don't have any grit. Uh, I think some of that's over overdone. Uh, I mean, I know plenty of young folks got plenty of grit and courage, but... Uh, I do believe that the curve has been in that direction for generations, and you know, part of my diagnosis is, uh, uh, you know, lack of manhood and womanhood initiations uh, that are real tests, and that uh, uh, if you look at peoples throughout the world, they've been doing this for as long as as history and prehistory uh, uh, records are, are available, or, or, or archaeological yeah. records. What can you tell us about uh, you know your folk or and folk related to your folk and and how they think about uh, the mm. coming of age of a man and a woman and, and what does that mean and, and how's that done you know don't mm. give us any clan secrets well, I don't want to hear they are crucified yeah, for but, giving away the clan secrets but you know what you can tell us tell us <laughs> well you know I've got, I mean it's, so everybody like immediately thinks about the ordeal side of things you know you know and they're, yeah they use there's usually some kind of ordeal that you go through, um, you know, and that, that's part of a sequence, uh, you know, a pedagogical sequence to get you to a state to actually, you know, change you, your chemistry, change your physical chemistry, you know, with a, like a very carefully administered sort of shock, you know, to the system. Um, so there is usually some kind of ordeal. And look, people um, go, like, so a lot of people say women... Any woman who gives birth, then she's going through a, a an initiation anyway, just naturally. And it's kind of true because you're going through an ordeal, you know. Anybody who goes through an ordeal, it does change them. But the meaning-making that's supposed to come after that is really, really important. You know, because without that teaching, without that sense-making, meaning-making that's quite collective... Um, then all that is is trauma, you know. Ordeal just gives you trauma, or just you know, or you know, I don't know. And, and everybody's got a different response to that, you know. I, I go real Nietzsche on on, on my responses to trauma, <laughs> like I go full, <laughs> you know. I don't know, um, full Genghis Khan, bloody Conan the Barbarian responses to that. I just Rah! that's my response. And that's not a healthy response. That's like a, that's one of those things you do when you're a damaged person who can't make meaning of the things that's happened to them. And so, you know, I guess your rites of passage are there to shepherd you through a kind of program of education that'll bring you into another way of being. Uh, so for young people, it's there to make sure that, um, 
you know, their adolescence doesn't last for longer than, you know, a few months, you know, that you are actually chemically changed into being an adult. Um, and, you know, you get one of these at about traditionally about every 15 years in your life. So you think about 14 or 15, you know, and then at age 30, then 45, then 60, you know, um, then you, and there's, there's, there's many stages, you know, to the point where you can see that people were living, you know, quite regularly people were living, you know, past 120, 130 years old because of all of the, the rights that there were, you know, and sequences and stages of initiation that continues into extreme elderhood. But yeah, you're gaining new knowledge at each time. And at each time, the new knowledge requires a, 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 a rewiring of your biology. You know, in the same way, um, your brain gets rewired when you become literate. Like Absolutely. biologically, yeah, your yeah. brain actually measurably changes. Yeah, it's the same see, thing. Yeah, you can see parts of your yeah. brain that can now find letters and turn them into words, right? Yeah. And we were not That's biologically it. evolved for that. We were biologically evolved for oral language, but for written language, yeah. not, there's not a bit. That That's a Absolutely. completely trained skill. Oh, your, your facial recognition, that that that, uh, that has to migrate to the other hemisphere of your brain, the, the, the connective tissue in between the hemispheres thickens. All these things happen when you become literate. So if you imagine something as you know, pretty mild as learning to read, how that can hardwire you biologically. If you imagine, you know, a big sequence of very structured, you know, very ancient sort of psychotechnologies that are designed to actually transform you at the chemical level, at the biological level, you know, in, 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 and these are, this is not magic. You know, this is like, we know what happens when you are, you know, if I start, um, like if I start, you know, mirroring your actions now, you know, a little bit, and I do the same facial expressions of you, I do personality memoring, you're going to feel good. Um, you know what I mean? And then if uh, I start clapping and you start clapping at the same time and then we start stomping at the same time, we start to feel that, and it doesn't work over Zoom. <laughs> Damn time lag. But, you know, th this has been studied as well, you know, scientifically, that um, our brains, like we recognize each other, ah, this person's like me, I'll do well here. And we're performing an action together in the same rhythm, same time. And then, but if you, there's this force multiplier that happens when you, when you scale that up so that there's like 50, 100, 150, 500 people, you know, all gathering for the big initiation rites. They're all doing that at the same time that does something to you. You're, it really transforms everybody there. It puts you in another state. So you've got, and that's just the basic, just clapping together. So imagine, you know, these rites that I can't even mention, um, you know, all these sequences of rites that take place over weeks, um, you know, with, with a lot of endurance ordeals, but then, you know, lots of group you know, very, very structured group activities and intensive learning, oral history. Um, uh, often you have to learn an entirely new language that's just a ritual language that's only used in that, in that ceremony. So you've got like three days to learn that language. You know, there's massive feats of intellectual prowess that you have to go through. Um, all of these things, it just completely rewires you to become uh, the person who's able to receive and to keep and to be a custodian of the knowledge that you're receiving. The bigger story 
um, for all of the things that you're looking after in the places you're looking after them um, and the way you're regulating you know those things and the movement of outsiders in those places you have to be really across the entire system you know you have to uh, there's there's a lot that needs to happen for you to become that custodian um, that custodial organism in, in all its different life stages you know so um yeah th- that's it's really integral to things that that big ceremony and it's separate ones for men and women um, it sounds like what it is is very strong experiences carefully crafted with people who have knowledge of psychotechnologies yeah. uh, but then again in high context so it's as you say it's totally distinct if something like these initiations were to happen to you just randomly in a hotel room with your uncle mm. uh you know it would be abuse and traumatizing but if it's in yeah, the context it. high context of the whole community and maybe even the meta community and as you say a special language and psycho uh psychotechnology tools that have been refined over generations then it's yeah. the exact opposite right it's it's transformational and integrating yeah uh, completely and um but it's not about yourself because <laughs> basically what you're going through in that first stage of initiation is coming out of that childhood where you're the center of the world and suddenly getting that rude shock realizing that you're not special and it's awful <laughs> you just, <laughs> so you're supposed to like come to that realize that oh I'm not special I'm nothing special I'm going to die <laughs> life it's going to hurt a lot life and and oh this is really shitty you know but especially i'm not special i'm no longer the center of the universe nobody cares about me ah and then but then you start to realize um oh but i'm part of something special i belong part of a bigger story this is the thing right this is the thing it's so long to something special and that special needs me you know that's and that's where i am i'm out in all of that that i belong to and that's who i am and that is unique because there isn't anybody who has that exact same unique patterning of relations that I have. That's my personality. That's my unique uh, fingerprint. You know, that's my that's my footprint in this world. Yeah, that that's you know that's beautiful and that's so different than the atomized person. Uh, you know, where we've given up. We know, as we like to say in the game B world. Uh, we've swapped our face-to-face communities and our extended families uh, for government and the market, both of which yeah. are, you know, anonymous transactional machinery that have, has no context. It's low context. There's no richness. Uh, we don't. We don't have our role in it really, other than as a consumer or a taxpayer. You know, I love the way you describe the fact that. Uh, yes, I'm no longer special, but then when I realize that I'm part of this bigger thing, I am special again And that, as you say, yeah. I have a unique, literally unique set, uh, set of inputs, uh, wirings of my brain, relationships with people, relationships with the land. And if I add this perspective into this larger stew as we all collectively try to make sense of it, mm. I do have my, my own unique role to play but it's in it's as a member of an orchestra not as a soloist yeah that's it nice yeah very cool yeah. very cool and i'm well, in there i play the triangle <laughs> every now and then i'm not like that I like to be the guy with the cannon in the 1812 overture <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
That's it. That's it. That's, I've always loved that opening to your podcast. It's got them big kettle drums in. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, thanks to my friend uh, Tom yeah. Muller at SpaceMusic.com, who des- custom designed that for me. At, uh, uh, he's an old friend of mine, and he's a, a modern composer. And I, I told yeah. him what I was looking for, and we went back and forth. And he said, I think what you need, Jim, is some really loud kettle drums. And I go, yeah. all right, let's try it. <laughs> but, then, but then subtlety, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm, not much, I'm not much with music, you know, because I was deaf for like, you know, the first 10 years of my life, I had that otitis media. So like I missed a lot of, um, you know, audio literacy. So I, I never really got into music, but I did write, I don't know if you ever come across that, op- that opera, uh, Fidelio. Uh, yeah, um, I know what, I, frankly, I hate opera, but that's between yeah, yeah. and the well, that, post, but, That's the but, one uh, where there's, where there's, it's unique because there's some spoken monologues throughout it. And there's a tradition where anywhere where you do it, a local writer, will write new monologues that fit the sort of place where they are, you know? And um, okay. so I got to do, I got to write, I got to write that for Fidelio for the Sydney Opera House for this next season. Holy shit. Yeah. I was mad. I got to that was hilarious. Some, <laughs> I got to do some real creative writing. Yeah. Anyway, it, yeah, that was hilarious. Um, that that was almost... That would almost be enough to get me to watch opera. But I, uh, I went to an opera once and I said, this is the most ridiculous thing i ever seen in my life. It kind of reminded me of musical comedy on acid or something. Uh, yeah. And I'm not much oh, on... Oh, this is, this is proper dark. You know, it's, it's got cross-dressing in it and all kinds of... You've got like... Uh, you know, it's basically somebody who's, who's kidnapped and thrown into a dungeon by, you know, an evil regime. You know, so anyway, all my monologues, they're all about like black ops and, and, and dark budgets and <laughs> Guantanamo <laughs> Bay and weird, weird, weird stuff like that. Oh, yeah, heaps of fun. With cool. a bit of romance, romance. <sighs> romance is always good, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, you know, we talked about some of the things we were supposed to have talked about, but we mostly talked about what the hell we wanted to talk about as usual. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think I, I wrapped up a lot of the stuff. I don't know, kind of aggressively. With with all, all the all the um you know the ideas around education and personal development that came out of a particular era, in around the Germanic sort of region at a particular time, and you know um, you know that the, these things need to be, you know, carefully handled, and not because like oh that's racist or like oh that's sexist or that's not politically correct or anything like that. But because, you know, it, it's quite simply with anything that you look at from another era, you're kind of like going, well, you know, so they got these things wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, what if they got, got that wrong, what else did they get wrong? Let's just handle this with care. Okay, I think that works well. I'll take the thumb knitting from Steiner and I'll take the <laughs> the playmats from Montessori and uh, you know what I mean? Like you just yeah, yeah. cherry pick, a, a, cobble together bits and pieces, you know, as you go. But if yep. you end up finding yourself a devotee of something, like freaking have a good look at yourself. What are you doing being a devotee of something? Like just get in there and have a look at it and, you know, take what you need, take it back to your family and sort of move around, like grow things together in your groups and, you know. Yeah, membranes and Get out there in your... Get out there in your context and gather data and come back and sit around the table and, and see what you want to play with. 
Um, talk to more Stoics. They got they got their act together. Those fellas. Yeah, the uh, we like to say membranes and protocols. You have a yeah, semi permeable membrane around your groups and your various groups hierarchically, but don't let them be non permeable. Let things in and out, right? That's and, it. And say, all right, well, those guys over there in uh, on the York Peninsula of Australia, they figured out some interesting things. Uh, I'm not sure I like it all, but I like these three or four things. Let's try it out yeah. here in our local membrane. I uh, go, hmm, well, these two work. This one didn't. Toss that yeah. one. Uh, let's take well, these you two. Know, I, I talk about how, how awesome and convivial we are, but then, you know, we speared a bunch of Dutchmen and, and sent a few survivors home, and that triggered the formation of the world's first corporation, and we know how that ended up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So right? Yeah, ended up with the Dutch inventing finance, and they invented art speculation, and both of those things converged to create NFTs. So I'm claiming responsibility for that as well. We yeah, everybody uses NFT. Never speared those Dutchmen 500 years ago. It's, um, yeah. it's a terrible knock-on effects, butterfly yeah, effects coming out from that. Yeah, send Tyson five cents every time you say NFT, uh, since he, uh, he owns that intellectual property. That's it. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> well, Tyson, uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, as always, this has just been such a rich and open-ended conversation. 